All right, go ahead and open up your Bibles to the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 21 is where we're at together today. Uh, 1 Samuel 21. Uh, if you don't have a Bible and you need one, there should be one in the pew in front of you. Or you can open up your smartphone or tablet to the YouVersion Bible app and follow along there as well. Um, so 1 Samuel chapter 21. Uh, this past week, my family and I, maybe it was a, a week ago, maybe it wasn't this past week, maybe it was, I don't remember. It was recently, last couple of weeks. Uh, my family and I, we watched Jurassic Park, uh, one of the old ones. I know there's, there's some old ones, there's an old sec- section of them, and there's a newer section of them. So we watched one of the old ones, and uh, it was one of the scenes where, you know, they're trying to get out of this barn or something, and they're trying to dig out. And as they're trying to dig out to get under, you know, the wall, uh, you know that the raptor is going to stick its head in the hole, right? You know it's going to happen, especially if you saw the movie 20 years ago. You know it's going to happen, all right? And so we're watching the movie. I know exactly how this is going to go. And then as soon as they, you know, put their little heads down there, then the raptor head comes into the hole. And you know what I did? I jumped. I jumped like I was a 10-year-old girl. Um, and uh, all of my girls then proceeded to make fun of me. They're like, Dad, you're such, you're such a dork. There's an almost automatic response that we have to fear, right? Now, why I was afraid of a plastic dinosaur from a movie 20 years old, I don't know, but especially when I knew exactly what was going to take place, but sometimes this is what takes place with us. Con- fear is so controlling that it's hard for us to control it. And when we, when we, instead of controlling fear, we allow it to control us, it can be one of the most difficult things uh, to do, to control fear instead of allowing it to control us. And so it's so strong that it can actually override your rational thinking. You ever had that moment where you, you, were, you were afraid and you did something and you look back and you're like, that was, that was just dumb. That didn't make any sense at all. Well, in 1 Samuel chapter 20, 21, fear is leading David's life. Fear has gotten into the driver's seat, and now there's a bunch of chaos that takes place in chapter 21. So here's our big idea as we look at 1 Samuel 21 together today. It's this. When you allow fear to drive, it will take you down the wrong roads. Right? Let's pray. Or actually, let's read 1 Samuel 21. Uh, We're going to read the entire chapter together, verses 1 through 15, and then we'll go back through and break it down together. It says this, 1 Samuel 21, 1. Now David came to Nob, to Ahimelech. The priest, and Ahimelech was afraid when he met David and said to him, Why are you alone and no one is with you? So David said to Ahimelech, the priest, The king has ordered me on some business and said to me, Do not let anyone know about the thing, uh, about, excuse me, let anyone know anything about the business on which I send you or what I have commanded you. And I I have uh, directed my young men to such and such a place. Verse 3 Now therefore, what, what have you on hand? Give me five loaves of bread in my hand or whatever, you can, whatever can be found. And the priest answered David and said, There is no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread. If the young men have kept themselves from women, uh, or and that, if the young, women, young men have kept them, at least kept themselves from women. Then David answered the priest and said to him, Truly, women have been kept from us about three days since I came out, and the vessels of the young men are holy. The bread is in effect common, even though it was consecrated uh, in the vessels in the vessel this day. So the priest gave him the holy bread, for the, there was no bread there but the showbread, which had been taken from before the Lord in order to put out hot bread in its place on the day when it was taken away. Verse 7, now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, 
detained before the Lord, and his name was Doeg, an Edomite, the chief of the herdsmen who belonged to Saul. And David said to Ahimelech, is there not here on hand a spear or a sword? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me because the king's business required haste. So the priest said, the sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah, there it is wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it. For there is no other uh, except that one here. And David said, there's none like it. Give it to me. Then David arose and fled that day from before Saul and went to Achish, king of Gath. And his, the servants of Achish said to him, uh, is this not David, the king of the land? Uh, did they not sing, sing of him to one another in dances, saying, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands? Now David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them, pretended madness in their, in their, uh, ma- excuse me, pretended madness in their hands, scratched the doors of the gate, and let his saliva fall down on his beard. Then Achish said to the servants, look, you see, the man is insane. Why have you brought him to me? Uh, Have I need of madmen that that you have brought this fellow to play the madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? There it ends sort of on a cliffhanger. Let's pray and uh, we'll jump into this. So Father, we come to you today. We thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the opportunity to open it and to study it. And God, we thank you that even in what we would look at as maybe obscure passages, things that we would just read past, that God, you have something for us. And so God, we come to you with expectant hearts, with hopeful minds, that God, you would speak to us and that we would hear clearly what it is that you have to say. And in doing so, that you would help us to apply your word to our hearts. Lord, we we don't want to just hear what you have to say. We want to actually be a people who follow after you. So, Lord, change us, uh, transform us, cause us to be a people who are made after the image of God. We pray together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, today we're going to look at 1 Samuel chapter 21, verses 1 through 15 in three parts, all right? The first part is verses 1 through 6. David gets a meal. And then 7 through 9, David gets a weapon. And then... The third part, 10 through 15, David gets away. See how I did that there? Away. Whatever. I thought it was clever. Anyway, um, so we're just going to be looking at this together today as we look at chapter 21. Now, when it works, one of the things that I like to do is actually, I have this written in my Bible. One of the things I do is I write in my Bible over a section or a chapter, I'll write another Bible verse that sort of is a synopsis of the ideas that are contained in that chapter. And, and in my Bible, what I have written over this chapter is Proverbs 29.25. Here's what 29.25 says in, in Proverbs. The fear of man brings a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. If I was to sum up this chapter, it's that. It's that if you're going to fear people, if you're going to allow the fear of man to control your life, then you're going to be caught in a snare. You're going to be caught up in things that you shouldn't be caught up in. It's going to lead you into the wrong way. But if you trust in the Lord, and and the contrast in that verse is that if I'm trusting in the Lord, then I'm not fearing man. You see that in that verse? That that I, I have to deny the fear of man in order to trust in the Lord. And sometimes that's a hard thing. Sometimes that's a difficult thing for us to do because because this 
fear of people, this desire for the respect of other people is such a huge drive within us. The desire to be accepted by others is such a massive thing within us that sometimes we'll actually deny the Lord in order to get that. And what this is challenging us to do is to say, no, do the opposite. Instead of trying to get people to accept you, you focus on the Lord accepting you. You focus on being honorable before Jesus and then let the chips fall where they may with other people. Some will receive you, some will not. Some will uh, think that you are an awesome person. Other people will think that you've lost your mind. Uh, and the truth of the matter is in all of this, that in chapter 21, fear is seeking to control your faith and get you to put your faith in the wrong places. You see, faith and fear will control the other. Either your life is controlled by faith or your life is controlled by fear. They're mutually exclusive terms, and when one is in charge, it controls the other one. So if my faith is in charge, it's going to control my fear. It's going to put my fear in check. It's going to put me in a place where maybe I sense the fear, but I'm not submitted to it. But the other is true as well. If I submit to fear, if I let fear control me, then I'm going to put my faith in check. My faith isn't going to be uh, what I live by uh, that way as well. You see, faith is vital to the Christian life, isn't it? It's a vital part of living a life that's honorable to God. The Bible actually says without faith, it's impossible to please God. It's, it's not even possible for you to live a life that pleases God apart from faith. And so if faith is vital, then it's a, a, a vitally important thing for us to, to have. But here's the thing. The power of your faith is only as good as the object of your faith. Faith isn't the key component, Right? It's the object. It's not like, you know, Disney has those shirts that say, believe. You know, you just believe in whatever, uh, whatever you want to believe in. Uh, it's, it's not that. It's not faith in faith. It's faith in Jesus. That's really what it all comes down to. There are four places that you can place your faith. Number one, you can place your faith in it. Maybe it's that circumstance. When that circumstance changes then I'll be saved. Then life will be good. Or maybe when I get that thing, then life will be good. Or maybe when I have that experience, then life will be, will be good. You're, you're placing your faith in it. Maybe that's where faith is placed. Or you can place your faith, secondly, in them. Maybe if that person will blank, then I'll be saved. Then life will be good. Maybe if I, if I get that boyfriend or that girlfriend... All the single ladies said that, right? Uh, maybe if I get that person, then life will be so good. Or you know what? It's not just that. It's if I get, when I get married, then life can start. Then life will be good. And it's not, no, not that. When I have children, then life will be perfect and serene. And all the parents are like, no. No, <laughs> <Oh>, it won't. <laughs> right? Maybe if, if I just had that president, then life would be good. Right? We put our, our faith in them. Not only it and them, but sometimes we put our faith in self, right? That, that if, if I can grow, if I can change, if I can take charge of my destiny, if I can achieve, then life will be good. And those are the three most common places that we place our faith, but there's only one place that faith should be placed, and that's in Jesus. That's the fourth option that we have, is in Jesus. That if my hope is in Jesus, then there's this powerful, God-honoring purpose that floods into my life. All of those other things, those, the it's, the them, and the self, all find their right place under Jesus. They all are submitted correctly, because here's the truth. A faith that is rightly placed is only placed in Jesus. 
That's the only right place to, play, to put your faith. It's in Jesus. And up until now, David's faith has controlled his fear. But in chapter 21, what we're going to see is that fear gets in the driver's seat of David's life and things go from bad to worse to even worse. That's what we see happening in David's life. You see, here's the big concept before we jump into this. Here's what you got to grasp. Fear doesn't replace faith. It doesn't replace faith. Fear redirects faith. That's what you got to understand. Fear doesn't replace your faith. It gets you to redirect your faith in the wrong place. That's what it causes you to do. You see, everyone has faith. Everyone has some faith, and we're all putting it in something or someone or somewhere. And what fear does is it gets you to misplace your faith. That's what fear does. All right, so let's look at this together, this first part. David gets a meal in verses 1 through 6. Look back at verse 1. It says this, Now David came to Nob, to Ahimelech, the priest. David, he's on the run. You remember from last week when we were looking at in chapter 20 uh, that David is betrayed by Saul. Jonathan seeks out what's going on with Saul and comes to the conclusion that Saul really is bent on the death of David. And so he delivers the message to David. And David, from that point, now is on the run in exile uh, for the next 10 to 20 years, depending on which commentator you read. So it's going to be a very long time. It's not like he's on the run for a couple of hours, you know, or, you know, like those little kids who say they're going to run away and they walk down to the corner and then they just stand there because they don't know where to go. Uh, they were gone for 20 minutes. Like this is going to be years. And years, this is going to be at least a decade of being on the run. And so David is in this very low, very bleak road that God has him on. In this very low moment uh, that David is in, it's, it, it's not quite the lowest moment of his life. We're going to get to one of the, more, the lowest moments of his life a little bit later on. But it's, I would say in the top five is this chapter. The top five lowest moments of David's life. And da what does David do? He makes the exact right move in this moment. What does he do? Look, at, it says there, he came to Nob, to Ahimelech, the priest. Now, he goes to this place, this place Nob, to Ahimelech, the priest. Why? Because that's where the tabernacle is. That's where the tent that would one, bit, one day become the temple, that's where it is. That's where the priests are there making sacrifices before the Lord and the worship of God is, is being done. The, David's first stop is the house of the Lord. And that's, that's for us. When we come into dark places in life, when we come into difficult times in life, the best place for us to be is in the house of the Lord. The best place for us to be is to be where God's people are, to seek him and to serve him and to worship him and to honor him. David Guzik says it like this, I want you to be able to hear the word of God as it comes forth from here and have God comfort you and strengthen you and speak to you. That's how it should be. The house of the Lord should be a place of refuge, a place of strengthening, a place where God builds us up in him. That, that's what Redemption Calvary needs to be. It needs to be a place where we consider this the house of the Lord, that we come together and we seek God together, and he builds us up and strengthens us as a place of refuge. And David, he shows up here, but that, that's, the, that's the end of the good things that David does. Right? Did, did you notice what he did when he went to the tabernacle? He went to the right place, but man, he didn't do the right thing. He didn't do the right thing. David, he shows up and he's alone, and it says there, Ahimelech was afraid when he met David and said to him, why are you alone and no one is with you? You see, David, this is not a normal thing. Um, he, he probably, 
you know, D David is a high official in the courts of Saul. So, you know, when, when you think about it like this, how many famous people and, or, uh, you know, important people do you know that wa wander around by themselves? None is the right answer. None is the right answer. Actually, uh, a few weeks ago, it was a, a weird experience. Uh, we were at uh, Disneyland uh, a few weeks ago, my family and I, and uh, we were walking around, and I stood up to walk, you know, kind of across this little pathway, and I actually ran face-to-face -face with uh, Russell Westbrook. I don't know if you know who that is. Uh, he's a, a basketball player, um, and uh, so I, I didn't recognize him because he was dressed in, like, just normal clothes, and he was by himself. And I was like, that, I looked at his face, and I was like, I know that guy. How do I know that guy? Oh, he's a, he's a famous NBA player. And, and so, you know, he wandered off, and I, I couldn't find him after I was going to chase him down and be weird. But um, I'm just not like that, so I didn't care. Uh, anyway, uh, but I just ran into him. But, but that's just a weird thing, right? Famous people or important people don't travel alone. This is weird. And so David shows up alone. He probably looks a bit wild from the last few days that he's had, you know. He hasn't been sleeping well. He probably hasn't been eating well. And Ahimelech is freaked out by this. And he's trying to figure out what David's intentions are. Look at verse 2. So David said to Ahimelech, the priest, the king has ordered me on some business and said to me, do not let anyone know anything about the business on which I send you or what I have commanded you. And I have direct, uh, directed my young men to such and such a place. So David's fear drives his faith to be placed in his own ingenuity to create a story that will get the results that he's looking for. What's David doing in this moment? He's lying. He's lying to save his own skin. Okay, now before you get on your high horse and say, David, shame, 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 right? Have you ever in your life ever maybe maybe fudged the truth a little bit or said something that was a little not quite true all the way or told a lie in order to save yourself or maybe in order to get a more favorable outcome. Anybody other than me in that boat? If you don't raise your hand, then you're lying right now, right? <laughs> that is all of us, right? We are all in that boat. And we can sort of understand why David would do such a thing, can't we? He's in this crazy, immense pressure, He's lost everything. He's on the run. He doesn't know who's his friends and who's his enemies. And it may very well be that this priest is on Team Saul. And so he doesn't know who he can trust. And so he tells this lie. That's not to excuse the lie, but it's to say we understand why. We can understand how and why this, this might happen. He, he's protecting himself. But also, it may very well be that he's trying to protect Ahimelech. You know, because he, he just wants him to, if he doesn't know anything, then when Saul asks him about stuff, then, you know, he just, he won't know, and maybe that will, that'll protect him. We'll see in the next chapter that didn't really work. Now, if you're, in a, if you're in a situation like that right now, where you're maybe in a downward spiral, maybe, maybe things are, have gotten bad, and now you've made a bad decision, and you've made the bad worse, here's the thing that needs to take place. There's two things that need to take place right now. You see... Number one, you need to confess to God that you've done the wrong thing and turn back to God. That's The Bible word for that is repentance. Repentance. Repentance is this idea that you have a front of you that's facing a direction. And what you are doing is you're not facing toward Jesus, and so you recognize that, and you decide to abandon that way, and you turn to Jesus, right? You don't turn to something else. You turn to Jesus, you don't turn to your wife to save you, men. You turn to Jesus. You don't turn from, you know, I got a drug problem. I'm going to turn to alcohol. 
No, that's not repentance. That's trading one sin for another sin. You turn to Jesus. That's the key to repentance is turning to Jesus, that you confess to God and turn back to the Lord. But there's another thing that has to take place, a second part to this. You don't just confess to the Lord. You also need to go and confess to those people you've injured. Your lies have hurt somebody else. Your downward spiral has hurt somebody else. Your sin has affected other people, and you need to come and, and make yourself exposed to them and ask for their forgiveness. That's a key component to this. Not just saying that what I did was wrong, but also to say, will you forgive me? The, me just saying that, for some of you, there's like your anxiety just went way up. I, I'm never going to say that. Why? Because it's extremely vulnerable, isn't it? When you say, will you forgive me? That's an extremely vulnerable and humble position to take. But it's the only position that we can take because that's the only one that invites the relationship to be restored. Apart from that, just saying, I'm sorry. That doesn't restore the relationship. Saying, I'm sorry, and then offering an excuse. I'm sorry I was mean. I'm a redhead. Did you not notice? Right? And everyone laughs because they know redheads are mean. Every redhead you've ever, they're like, why are they such jerks, right? I'm like, um, okay, so, so offering an excuse, does, that doesn't make up for it. No, I, I am sorry, will you forgive me? That's how you restore relationships. That's how relationships are brought back together. And so that's, this is what needs to happen. You see, owning your sin up front is better than them finding out later. That's hard, isn't it? For some of you right now, you are fighting me so hard. You're like, I'm not telling nobody. I understand that. I understand that. But there, there's at least two people you need to tell. Jesus and whoever's involved. You need to go to them. You need, you need to restore those relationships because your relationship with Jesus is broken so far, so long as sin is harbored in your heart. And your relationship with them is broken. Even if you're pretending like it's okay because you've covered up your sin, it's still not okay. It's still destroyed. You're still injuring the relationship. And so it needs to be restored. Okay, moving on, verse 4. And the priest answered, uh, actually, verse 3, David, David says, hey, you got any bread? Uh, and he says, whatever you got. The priest, verse 4, answered David and said, there's no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread if the young men have at least kept themselves from women. Uh, and so, uh, in verse 5, then David answered the priest and said to him, truly, the women have been kept from us about three days since I came out, and the, the vessels of the young men are holy, and the bread is in effect common, even though it was consecrated to, in, the vessels, uh, in the vessel this day. So, you know, basically he asked for bread. The priest says, I don't have any, I don't have any common bread. I have holy bread. Uh, as long as the young men have kept themselves from women, at least, they, they have to at least meet the minimum requirement of being ceremonially clean. And David perpetuates the lie by saying, yes, the pretend men that don't exist over the hill over there, they're clean, right? Um, it's been at least three days, which is true for him. So it must be true of them that don't exist, right? Uh, and so anyway, the priest says, there's only holy bread in this entire town of Nob, right? Like there's, no, there's only this holy bread that's there. Now that may not seem like a big detail, but it's actually a commentary on the spiritual state of Israel. Here's how Warren Wiersbe says it. He says, if the people had been bringing their tithes to the tabernacle as the law commanded, there would have been more food available. But it was a time of spiritual decline in the land. 
You see, the, the fact that there's no bread other than just this holy bread there speaks to the fact that there's, just, there's not an abundance of what is necessary there. That if, if the people had just brought what they were supposed to bring anyway, there would be more than enough, and there would have been uh, more than enough for David as well. You see, one of the outward indicators of the spiritual health and maturity of a person is their generosity. It's their willingness to give. Jesus actually says, your money and your heart are linked to one another. He says in Matthew 6, 21, wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. You see, this just shows us the people, they just weren't generous. They weren't willing to give. They weren't willing to put the Lord first and to follow him in their giving to the tabernacle and therefore there just isn't any bread. But there's, there's this stuff called holy bread. Look at verse six. So the priest gave him holy bread, for there was no bread there but the showbread. So the showbread and the holy bread are the same thing, which had been taken from before the Lord in order to put, out, uh, put hot bread in its place on the day when it was taken away. Okay, so you're like, what in the world is going on? Write down in your notes, if you'd like to, Leviticus 24, 5 through 9. Leviticus 24, 5 through 9. I want to encourage you. I'm going to give you a taste of this. I want you to look this up, look this section up and read it and see what this is all about. There's actually some things that are said in here that are, that are important for us to grasp. But here's the concept. Uh, in Leviticus, this is the law of the showbread or the holy bread. Here, here's the concept. If you were to go to the tabernacle then or the temple later on, and you were to go past the courts and to go into the holy place, there's two chambers inside this tent. One is the outer chamber called the holy place, and then there's an inner chamber called the holy of holies. Inside the Holy of Holies would be the Ark of the Covenant, which at this time isn't there, okay? It's at some dude's house. It doesn't come back into the tabernacle until uh, uh, 2 Samuel, uh, when David finds it there. Okay, so in the holy place, when you came through the, the doors, to your right, there would be a table, and on the table, there would be uh, 12 pieces or loaves of bread. Now, you're thinking loaf of bread, and you're thinking wrong. Think pita bread, okay? It's more like a big, giant pancake, uh, kind of a thin, puffy bread, okay? There would be two stacks of six, 12 of them all stacked up. And, and, and this show bread was to be placed there uh, every week there would be new bread placed out. On the Sabbath day, they'd put hot bread out there and they'd take the old bread out. And then the priests commonly would eat the old bread uh, as well. It's like day-old donuts or whatever, you know, um, kind of a thing. So they would get this bread. Now, let me ask you a question. When you set a table, when you put some food on it, what are you saying? Let's eat, right? That's what you're saying. You're communicating, let's eat, the entire point of showbread, the entire point of holy bread is fellowship. You see, when we eat, it's a time of fellowship, isn't it? When you, sit, when, you, when you sit around a table and you sit with other people and you have conversation and you eat together, it's an intimate thing. And in an Eastern culture, in this time, in the biblical time, it would be an even more intimate interaction that they would have because they literally believed that as they tore off of the same pieces of meat and bread and whatnot and dipped into the sauces, that they were taking one another in. That if we were to eat together, that I would become part of you and you would become part of me. It was a very intimate thing that was taking place. And so God here is setting a table and notice what he sets out, 12 loaves of bread. Why 12? One for each of the tribes of Israel. God is saying, I want intimate relationship and fellowship with my people. 
See, fellowship is a Bible word that we don't usually you know, use too much unless you're talking about the fellowship of the ring, Lord of the Rings or something. But fellowship is a word that we use, uh, that, that the Bible uses, that we don't commonly use. And we, use, we just kind of think about relationships. But biblical fellowship transcends every relationship you've ever had. It's more than your motorcycle club. It's more than having a common interest that I like to play basketball. It's more than, you know, people you play uh, video games online with. It's more, than, uh, it's more than even military members who fight together and experience that deep bond. Biblical fellowship is deeper than that even still, that this is what God is wanting with his people. So don't you, can you just see, can you hear God's voice crying out to David in this moment? David, I want fellowship with you. It's not just a, it's not just a happenstance or a random occurrence that somehow there was no other bread and that there's only this showbread and that David is able to take some of this. God is saying, even in the midst of your lying and your downward spiral, I'm still chasing you. I, I want fellowship with you. And that's what God is saying to us here today. That God wants he wants more than just the passing moments of your life. He wants more than just an hour and a half on a Sunday morning. He wants more than just a random thought here and there. He wants deep, intimate relationship with you and me. He wants to call us back into that kind of relationship. You see, David thinks he's getting bread, but he's actually getting in this bread is God's call back to the relationship that he's literally abandoning in this moment. Not only does David get a meal, he also gets a weapon. Verse 7. Now, a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, uh, detained before the Lord, and his name was Doeg, an Edomite, the chief of the herdsmen who belonged to Saul. Now, this might seem like a random verse. You know, it kind of doesn't fit in with the rest. But it actually has major implications in the following chapter. It's kind of like, you know, when you're watching a movie, and then... The, the director just shows you this random person who's kind of got a sinister look on their face and it's kind of dark around them. You're like, oh, that's a bad guy. I don't know why that's a bad guy, but that's a bad guy. And then it cuts back to the scene. You're like, what is that? And then you remember that guy later. That's what's, that's what's happening here. Uh, this guy is an Edomite, uh, which are descendants of Esau. Remember Jacob and Esau. From Esau came the Israel, the nation of Israel. From uh, Esau, did I say that right? From Jacob came Israel. From Esau came the Edomites. Um, and uh, so they are, they're there, um, you, know, in, in, you know, as this people group, and they were basically enemies as long as they uh, were around. And this guy, we find this enemy of the people of God is working for Saul. Now, it says there that he was detained in verse 7. This is probably a technicality of a religious rite that he's going through in order to be able to work for Saul. You know, he has to kind of go through this, these motions, so he's doing that. But notice there's another word in there, that he's the chief of the herdsmen. Uh, that word chief is actually a word that could be translated cruel or violent. Here's the picture. Doeg uh, is, um, is at the tabernacle, but he's not a God-honoring God good guy. Right? He's, not a, he's not a good guy. And we're going to see later on that this is absolutely true. All right, so then, verse 8, And David said to Ahimelech, Is there not... Here on hand a spear or a sword, for I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. So the priest said, the sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah, there it is, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it. For there was no other except that one here. So David said, there is none like it, give it to me. Now David here is on a slippery slope of lies. And one lie becomes another, 
and becomes another. Isn't that the way the lies work? Once you tell a lie, now you have to tell more lies to prop up that other lie. It's a house of cards that eventually it's all just going to fall down. The lies, they become more deceptive with partial truth. And technically what he says is true when he says the king's business required haste. Why? Because Saul, the king's business, was to murder David. So he's like, I had to get away real fast. I couldn't even go to my house and grab some weapons or anything. So it's technically true, even though what he's saying is absolutely a lie. Maybe, maybe even getting a weapon for David was the entire point of going here. Maybe he even knew that Goliath's sword was here. Why it was here, I don't know. Nobody really knows why. Uh, but Goliath's sword is kept here at the tabernacle. And maybe David knew that. And that's why he went here. And he thought, you know what? I might as well ask for some bread along the way as well. Perhaps that's what's going on. But this sword would have certainly stirred up many memories and emotions for David. Just th- think about that. As he held that sword, he would immediately remember the battlefield. He would remember what it was like to be on the, uh, on the field uh, of battle in the Valley of Elah. He would remember God's great victory. He would remember what it was like when he took that sword from Goliath and cut off Goliath's head with his own sword. He would remember all this. It would be vivid for him. And it would stir back a bunch of emotions for him. And if this is true, what he says, notice what David says there. He says, there is none like it. Give it to me. What a great sword this is. If this is true of a physical sword, then it's absolutely more true of the sword of the Spirit. Ephesians 6.17 says this, Put on salvation as your helmet and take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. See how God's Word is equated to the idea of a Spirit, uh, of the sword of the Spirit here? Hebrews 4.12 says this, For the word of God is alive and powerful. It's sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit and joints and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. That this is God's word described like a sword that penetrates deeply. That it can divide things that you and I can't even figure out. Here, here let, me, let me say it this way. Tell me the difference between your soul and your spirit. Go ahead, I'll give you some time to think about that. Right? When you try to describe, you're like, I, yeah, I understand that. And then you try to describe it, you're like, ah, pff, it's some things and things. God's word can divide that. Even if we can't, even if we're not sure how, God's word penetrates us deeply to divide us where we know what's going on. And what's the point of that? To bring us to conviction so that we trust in Jesus. So we abandon our way and we go his way. This is the word of God. You see, we have an amazing sword available to us as well, but only if we will take it up. God's word is this amazing sword. Here, David Guzik says this, when you see how wonderful, how precious something is, you say, I want that. Now, if, what is, uh, if that is true of the sword of Goliath, shouldn't it be even more true of the sword of the spirit, the word of God? Can you look at this book that is sitting in your lap and can you say, there is none like it, give it to me. There is no other book that speaks for the voice of God as this one does. There's no other book that is the word of God. It doesn't just contain the word of God. It is the word of God. There is none like it. Give it to me. I want it. Is that the attitude that we have with the scriptures? Is that the way that we approach God's word? You see, God in this moment isn't just giving David a sword. God is calling David back to a life of fellowship in the bread and back to a life of faith with the sword. Remember how I met you. You didn't kill Goliath, David. I did, the Lord is saying. And here's the sword to remind you of that moment. You see, God is pursuing David even as he runs away.
Thirdly and finally, not only David gets a, a, a meal, David gets a weapon, but David gets away, verses 10 through 15. Verse 10 says this, Then David arose and fled that day from before Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. Now, here what we see happening is that maybe as you read this, you're like, okay, another city, another king. It's you know similar. He went to Nob and saw Ahimelech. Here he goes to uh, Gath and sees Achish. Here's... You know, if, if maybe you don't have some understanding of what's going on biblically here, it could just seem like another place. But this is actually going from bad to worse to this is tragic. This is even worse. David's fear drives his faith to be placed in the enemy for help. He's trusting in the enemy to save him. You see, Gath is one of the five chief Philistine cities. It's one of the five capital cities of the Philistines, the enemies of God. And if you remember... Uh, back in chapter 17, verse 4, Gath is where Goliath is from. You know, it's like, it's like when you go into, in, into those towns and you see the sign that says, home of such and such famous person. As you're coming into Gath, it might say, Gath, home of Goliath. You know, that he's this famous warrior and David's going there. Do you remember anything about David and Goliath? Anybody anything about that? He killed the guy, right? Like, so David is going to the enemy and he's going to the city of the, the hometown of the guy that he, he just killed. Oh my goodness, what is David thinking? Well, what is going on in his mind? This is the absolute last place David should go. See, getting food and getting a weapon, it drastically improved David's score of survivability. You know, it's like he didn't, he's, he's on the run, he's got nothing. What does he need to do first? Get some food get a weapon. His score of survivability goes way up. And then he goes to Gath and it's like, well, now he's negative. You know, like that was, you're going to die, bro. That's it. You just murdered yourself. That was a very bad, bad idea. This decimates that score. Now, verse 11 says this, and the servants of Achish said to him, is this not David, the king of the land? And did they not sing of him to one another in dances saying, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands, these servants, they, they recognize David right away. And interestingly, did you see that? They, know, they recognize him as the king of the land. The, the enemies could see what Saul refused to see. What a crazy idea. They immediately see him as the king of the land. And they know his hit single, right? David has slain his ten thousands. They know the song. They know the words. Maybe they know the dance moves as well. And, but David is weird because he doesn't understand how, how actually um, uh, um, he's unaware of how famous he really is. He, he has no idea. He's foolishly thinking, yeah, I'll just go to Gath. I'll just hide out there. They won't know me. I'll just sneak in. I'll just, li- I'll just go under the radar. Everything will be great. And he shows up and he immediately gets detained. Hey, that's David. Let, arrest that guy. You know, like, what is he doing here? He's the giant killer. Uh, David Guzik says this, David is going to all the wrong places for help, for his help. I don't know if you've ever noticed this in your own life, but when you're in a period of decline spiritually, many times you don't think very clearly. David's in a, he's, he's in a downward spiral. Things are just getting worse. He's not trusting in the Lord, fears in the driver's seat. He's going to all the wrong places. And now, Now he's being driven deeper into something that is more and more foolish because he can't think clearly. You see, the fact that David feels safer in one of these five Philistine capital cities and the hometown of Goliath speaks volumes to how bad things actually are with Saul. 
And in his own mind, things are super bad if he thinks this is a good idea. Verse 12. Now David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. He realizes this was a bad move. This could cost me everything. This might be where it all ends. I'm sure it seemed like a great idea until this moment. See, here's the thing. Fear can control the logical part of your mind and cause you to rationalize foolishness. It's the danger of fear. You'll rationalize foolish decisions. You'll, you'll think that's a great idea. Let's go to Gath and let's hide out there. No, that's, that's actually putting your, yourself in harm's way in a crazy, crazy way. And so David realizes this in verse 13. So he changed his behavior before them, pretended madness in their hands, scratched on the doors of the gate and let his saliva fall down on his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, look, you see this man's insane. Why have you brought him to me? Have I, I, uh, have I need of madmen that you have brought this fellow to play the madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? And so David, what does he do? He realizes he's made a terrible decision. And this is potentially much worse in this situation than it was with Saul. So, so what's going on? He acts like, a, like an insane person and basically hopes for the best. Well, there's two opposing views of what's taking place in this section here, uh, of what's going on here. Uh, number one, that David is diving deeper into faithlessness at this moment. Uh, personally, that's kind of what I see. I see that David is, he's acting crazy and uh, just losing even more of his faith and, and he sees himself as going nuts. But there's another idea that's, that some have that David actually got this idea from God. That David, as, as he was held before going before Achish, he's praying and that God actually beams into his little head, act like a moron. And then he does and it saves his life. Like, I, hey, I don't know, maybe God did that. Maybe this is an act of faith. It could be either, uh, either one of them. Why? Because this is very humiliating. When you get yourself into really bad situations, you know the only way out? Humility. It's going to cost you. It's going to cost you your pride. It's going to cost you how awesome you think you are. And so he goes into this. Now, why do, why do some people say that this could be from the Lord? Well, the reason is because Psalm 56 was written at this time. I know we read it earlier, but let's turn there. Turn your Bibles to Psalm 56 really quick. Psalm is very in the very middle of your Bible. Psalm 56 um, is where we're going to be. And I want to read this psalm with you. I don't want to say too much about it other than just point it out and read it together with this uh, time frame in our minds. Psalm 56, page 502. Just kidding, that's my Bible. Um, psalm 56. So the, the introduction says this. To the chief musician set to the silent dove in distant lands, that's, that's the, the tune, a mitkam of David uh, when, listen to this part, when the Philistines captured him in Gath. So this tells us when David wrote this, okay? He says this, Be merciful to me, O God, for man would swallow me up, fighting all, uh, all day he oppresses me. My enemies would hound me all day, for there are many who fight against me, O Most High. Whenever I am afraid, I will trust in you. Doesn't that phrase carry deep, deeper significance now that you know the situation he's in? Whenever I'm afraid, I will trust in you. In God, I will praise his word. In God, I have put my trust. I will not fear what can flesh do to me. 
All the day they twist my words. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They gather together, they hide, they mark my steps when they lie and wait for my life. Shall they escape by iniquity? In anger, cast down the peoples, O God. You number my wanderings, uh, put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book when I cry out to you? Then my enemies will turn back. This I know because God is for me. In God, uh, I will praise his word. In the Lord, I will praise his word. In God, I have put my trust. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Vows made to you are binding upon me, O God. I will render praises to you, for you have delivered my soul from death. Have you not kept my feet from, from uh, falling? What, uh, that I may walk before God in the light of the living. See, this moment is significant. This moment is significant. Why? Because this psalm is all about repentance, isn't it? This psalm is all about David recognizing, I've gone the wrong way. God, I need you to rescue me. Now, some say that David maybe wrote this psalm while he was in his prison cell. Others may see it as he was reflecting back. And depending on when you think he wrote this psalm is when you think this all took place. And if God gave him the idea to act insane or if he just got out of it because God is so gracious, either way, it really doesn't matter. The point is God was at the center place of his heart again. He was led to the end of himself. He was led to repentance. You see... God had put himself in a, excuse me, David had put himself in a foolish spot. David has no one to blame for what's going on in 1 Samuel 21 but himself. He made the decisions. He took the steps. He put himself in this place. But God was still gracious to cause Achish to set him free. What a wild thing. You ever gotten yourself in really bad situations? You ever just been in a really bad spot? Maybe you're in a really bad spot right now. The thing to do is not try to figure your way out of it. Not turn to your own intellect, not turn to lies, not turn to the enemy, but to turn to the Lord. God, I've messed it up so badly. Would you be gracious to me? Would you be merciful to me? Would you help me in this situation? You see, the important thing about this psalm is that it shows us that David hit the brakes. He stopped the downward spiral. And that is what sets him apart from Saul, isn't it? Saul never hits the brakes. He keeps going down. But David hits the brakes. You see, when you find yourself on the wrong road, it's not too late. You haven't gone too far. God's grace can still find you there and can still come to you. God's grace is strong enough to even find you there. The question is, when will you stop? When will enough be enough? Where, when, how far is enough? And when is it time to turn back? Here's the, here's the answer. The right time for repentance, the right time to turn away from yourself and to turn to the Lord is right now. That's the right time. It's not then. It's not later on. It's not after you've wallowed in it for a while. It's not after you've beat yourself up for it. It's not when you, you, when you, uh, you know, feel like you've paid enough penance or whatever that is. It's when you realize that you've sinned, when you realize you've stepped off of the path that the Lord is taking you down and you're gone your own way. The right time to repent is right now. That's the right time to turn to Jesus. You see, at this point, it's easy for us to look at David and think he's disqualified. 
Yeah, he repents. Yes, God is so good to him. But there, there must be no more throne for David. All the stuff that God had planned for David, it's all gone now. It's all a wreck now. It's all over now. He's gone too far. But the fact that David is broken and repentant is exactly what qualifies him for all that the Lord has for him. That's what, it's, it's not being perfect. You see, the, the truth is that God knows you're not perfect. And if he was only willing to use perfect people, then none of us, None of us would get a shot at being used by God. God doesn't use perfect people. He uses repentant people. Think about that. I need you to hear that. Because if there's anything I know about me, I know this about you. You're not perfect. You got some things in your life that you hope nobody finds out about. You got some, some dark spots in your life that you're just, God, would you, would you cover over that? Would you... Would you cleanse that? God does not use perfect people because we don't exist. God uses repentant people. And so, if you, if you are hardened in your own way, it's gonna keep you from his blessings. But there are three major components to repentance. Number one, stop going the wrong way. You have to, you have to choose to stop going the wrong way. You can't say, God, you, you just accept me as I am. I'm going to keep going the wrong way. I'm going to keep living in sin. And I'm just, I need you to love me, and I need you to bless me. That's just not how it works. Number one, you have to choose to stop going the wrong way. Go, going back to what you want is not repentance. Saying, that's sinful. I'm going to sort of stop it, and then going back to it, that's not repentance. Does that make sense? You have to abandon that thing. Number two, you have to turn to Jesus. It's not, not enough just to, just to turn away from, from the wrong thing. You've got to turn to Jesus, that his forgiveness is by his blood, and that's all that you need. The blood of Jesus forgives your sin. And thirdly, follow after Jesus. The idea of repentance is that growing is an implied necessity. It's not just that you're not doing the bad, but that you're doing the good. Does that make sense? You're replacing that in your life with what is appropriate. Repentance is not just saying that's bad. You can say that's bad and still do it. Does that make sense? You can say, well, that's wrong. I shouldn't, go, I shouldn't do that and still do it. You've got to abandon that thing. You've got to abandon your way in pursuit of Jesus. Essentially, what you do is you replace your sin with worship. Isn't that what Psalm 56 is all about? That David has abandoned his way and he's turning to the Lord and he's worshiping the Lord. So that's what I want to encourage us with today. Lord, keep, keep us on short accounts with you that, that help me to recognize my sinfulness immediately and give me the courage to come to you and expose it immediately. And God, give me your forgiveness that I may walk in holiness as you've made, you've made me to do. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word today. God, we thank you for the opportunity to open it to see what it is that you have to say to us and to understand that, Lord, you are for us. Thank you for this, this imagery, this narrative, this story of your grace. Thank you that, that as we look at David's life and we see so many times when you could have abandoned him in this chapter, so many times when you could have brought the hammer down on him in this chapter that you didn't, Lord. You reached out to him. You continued to pursue him. You continued to speak to him and to draw him back. And Lord, when he repented, you brought him back. Thank you, Lord. And Father, that gives us hope that you will love us the same, that you will give us that same grace. And so we ask for it together today in Jesus' name. Amen.